housing complexes can often form some of the biggest statements in an architect's oeuvre. For Moshi Safdie, before his world-famous Singaporean mega-projects, there was a riverside housing project in Montreal that evolved from his master's thesis into a centrepiece of the 1967 World Fairs exhibition and ultimately a Canadian icon. You're listening to Tall Stories, a Monocle production brought to you by the team behind The Urbanist. I'm Angie Tuck. In this episode, Paul Logothetis explores the terraces and towers of Habitat 67. Ask any Montrealer about Habitat 67, and the response inevitably will refer to the legacy of the 1967 World's Fair and or its architect, Moshi Safdie. But what of its ethos and raison d'être? Few of us can honestly fill you in on that. While the distinct Lego block-like concrete structure is a Canadian icon that fills Montrealers with pride, our actual knowledge is limited. Habitat has always been there, but few have been in there. Montrealers should know the most about Habitat because it's like in the skyline. They know it's famous, they know it's important, but they don't know anything about it. And when they go to visit, they're totally surprised, time and time again. Which proves something very important about architecture. You cannot judge it by pictures, you cannot judge it by rendering, you can only judge it one way, by experiencing it. Experiencing it hasn't been simple, however. The three towers that make up the 148 units spread across 354 prefabricated queues became private housing following Expo 67. It was nearly impossible to experience the architectural marvel that is Habitat unless you are one of the approximate 250 residents, or if you know one of them. Security is pretty tight. There's literally like cameras everywhere, so you know, it would last about like two minutes and then I'd get kicked out. That's Julie Bélanger, a self-described Expo 67 fanatic. She has the tattoo to prove it who is a complete Habitat geek. When not being chased off-site, she sought out friendships with Habitat residents to gain access. She's built her home around a salvaged original Habitat kitchen. Residents are even quick to alert her to unit renovations so she can visit the dumpster dive. So it makes sense that she leads a seasonal tour of Habitat that allows visitors to not only roam its alleys, roads, and gardens, but to get a peek inside the modules too. It's a nice showcase for the building. And maybe it wasn't true back in the 1980s or 90s, but now obviously if you live at Habitat, you're aware that this is something impressive. And for many residents now, it's the reason why they live at Habitat and they don't live in any other condos. It's like, wow, you know, this is Habitat. <laughs> so so sure. it's part of the deal. Safdi was just 23 years old when the Canada Housing and Mortgage Corporation greenlit the construction of his architectural school thesis for the international exhibition, which locals refer to as Expo 67. It took just three years to complete, but went over budget, meaning only a fraction of the original vision was completed. That plan included cubes stacked 20 to 30 stories high in pyramid-shaped towers, which contained residential units, office spaces, hotels, schools, and museums, all dotted by green space. The residential units are here today, but the only amenity is the small store in the underground garage. Safdie's philosophy of a garden for everyone is abundantly apparent. Each unit consists of anywhere from two to four blocks, which are extended by wide doors leading to terraces that swallow in the city view. The motto became, let's try and get the quality of life on the house in a multi-story building. And the first thing was, how do you provide and what is a garden? To me, a garden is open to the sky, not a recessed balcony into the building. 
The eventual budget for this low-cost vision of housing made the original idea untenable in those days. But technology has provided us with a realistic look at what could have been for Habitat. Working from the original schematic drawings, Safdie Architects collaborated with creative agency Neoscape and Epic Games to develop a 3D model of the original vision. To say it towers above the current version is an understatement. It rivals Safdie's towers in Asia and South America, with this supersized habitat also looking prominently greener as parks and green cushion pedestrianized streets throughout. When I saw it three-dimensionally, just moving through it, it kind of brought it to life. I kept thinking, if that had been realized, maybe the course of architecture would be a little different. Strolling through Habitat today, the true mix of suburbs and city comes with more benefits than drawbacks. The only noise comes from neighbors chatting with the soft roar of the St. Lawrence River, where surfers ride a continuous wave that was created during the construction of this man-made island. But there also sits a crane outside waiting to be called into service to wash the complex's windows. It also does the job when larger pieces of furniture need to be delivered to top floors. Still, juxtaposing what could have been with what there is leaves us with the feeling that Habitat may have started something unique all those years ago. If you'd asked me the question 25 years ago, I would have said it didn't because it didn't proliferate. It was pretty well dismissed for the first 20 years of his life as a one-time event that won't have much impact. It had some impact on resort architecture. But you ask me the question today, 50 years after the building being there, my answer is, is absolutely it's had an impact because today it's become part of the mainstream and major architects of the next generation who are now in their 50s and 40s are building projects under the influence of the habitat which they acknowledge and many of the qualities that we just discussed fractalization and terracing and so on, they're introducing into the work. And I think it's come full cycle. Tall Stories is a Monocle production from the team behind The Urbanist. This episode was written by Paul Logothetis and produced and edited by David Stevens. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive new episodes every week. I'm Andrew Tuck. Goodbye. And thank you for listening, City Lovers. Listener.